Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. A lot of the times when we hear stories about immigrants coming to the U.S., it's stories about the challenges they face just trying to get here. But there's another side to that story. What happens when they get to the U.S. and start to look for work? And there is a big problem. Many of them have college degrees, but they can't find jobs where they can really use their skills and education. It's something that we should be paying more attention to because there's a greater proportion now of college-educated immigrants who come to the U.S. than in years past. In California, there are hundreds of thousands of underemployed immigrants with degrees. Some spend years trying to put them to use, and they don't have a lot of help. But in fields like healthcare, especially healthcare, speaking another language is a major plus. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. We have these estimates from the Migration Policy Institute, and they say that there's about 450,000 people in California who are underemployed. And by that, they mean they're in you know, jobs that are lower-skilled jobs or that they can't find work. Farida Javala Romero covers immigration for KQED. And while she reported on this, she interviewed someone named Dr. Wilmer Garcia Ricardo. He's from Cuba and came to the U.S. back in 2012. From a little town in the east side of the island, I will say four hours from Guantanamo Bay. Okay, what's the name of the town? It's named Olguin. Olguin. And did you study? He's 38 years old now, and he practiced for seven years as a, a physician in family medicine in Cuba and in Venezuela. Why did he decide to come to the U.S.? He said he was really disillusioned with um, his his work as a Cuban medical professional in Venezuela, and he didn't want to return to Cuba. Cuba is a communist country where they still dictate you where you go to war, how much you are going to make, where you can or you cannot war, what kind of circumstances at your war you are going to live with, and they also tell you how your life has to be. He didn't like all the control. He felt he was under um, by the Cuban government. Um, He wanted to have more opportunities as a doctor and as a human being, is how he explained it to me. And I explored other options in the area, but then finally I decided to come to the United States because this was the track that was more easy for me to follow from a personal point of view, but also in a professional wise. He he didn't want to go back to Cuba, and he thought about staying in Venezuela, but then there was this option for him to come to the U.S. as a medical professional through a government program that no longer exists. And so it seems like he was expecting to have more opportunities here in the U.S. as a doctor. Yes, definitely, and as a person. Wilmer was in Florida for a while and eventually wound up in Louisville, Kentucky. 
In order to work as a doctor in the U.S., he had to take some licensing exams and finish some residency training. But in the meantime, he needed to just find a job to support himself. He got a, a job as a patient aide at a nursing home, which he said for him was just such a demotion, right? Like right, yeah. Being, working as a doctor for years and then coming to the U.S. and working as someone that helps nurses, you know, at a nursing home take care of patients. So Wilmer ends up in Louisville. He doesn't really have help with figuring out the process of getting recertified. Does he go through this whole process on his own? Well, he says from, like, day one, his goal was to work as a doctor again. And so he said he started, um, you know, looking for information and forums online of other international medical graduates who are going through the same thing and trying to also, you know, get uh, back to working as doctors in the U.S. I started buying on Amazon my first books. I start looking into blogs and forums online. Trying to study, you know, and going to work during the day and studying in the afternoon. So he was really committed for years to be able to pass all of these exams and then apply to medical residency programs, which you need to be able to practice as a physician in the U.S. And then came the, the big moment of applying for medical residency programs. And he said that was sort of like the biggest hurdle. I think that that year that I decided to do that on my own, I spent probably $3,500 to $4,000 in application fees. I would say that I applied to 166 programs and I received one interview invitation. And so he was pretty devastated, right? Like he'd already spent years and a lot of money and a lot of effort in this, you know, goal. Um, and it didn't work out. It seems incredibly stressful for somebody like Wilmer, who came to the U.S., was put in, you know, in the middle of the country and is trying to navigate all these bureaucracies and all, you know, the education system to a certain degree. Right. I mean, it's not just what you have to go through professionally to regain your profession as a doctor in his case, but um, it was also like the cultural change, you know. He said like he felt like he was just born again in the sense that, you know, he came from Cuba, uh, so he didn't know what a credit score was. He'd never mm -hmm. had a credit card, you know. He um, There were all these things he needed to, to learn, and like the transportation system. He didn't have a car, you know. Like it's just all these new things for that for anyone would be like a lot to handle. But then on top of that, he also had this, this mission to, to work as a doctor again. And so he had to figure it out on his own. And he has thought a lot about this and just didn't understand how it was possible that the government would give him this opportunity to come live in the U.S., resettle in the U.S. as a medical professional, because the program that he used to come to the U.S. was for Cuban medical professionals. But, but then once he was here, he was just like one more, you know, sort of refugee or humanitarian migrant. And there was no guidance or support to help him, you know, find his way back through his profession and, and pass all the hurdles that you have to go through to get recertified as a doctor in the U.S. I feel like there's an added layer for the immigrants with 
the degrees living in California and especially living in the Bay Area too because of also the high costs of living out here that they also have to navigate and think about. Right. So I visited a refugee resettlement agency in San Jose. It's called the International Rescue Committee, and they have offices elsewhere as well. Uh, But San Jose is a city with such a big immigrant population and so diverse. So I wanted to see what it was like for them, you know, there. Um, And so I met people who were computer engineers, who had worked in high-ranking government positions, who uh, had worked for um, international nonprofits, uh, and had done, you know, some serious professional work and had a lot of experience. And their new jobs in the States were always what uh, staffers at the International Rescue Committee called survival jobs. So it's just so you can, you know, be able to start paying your bills, start paying your rent. I spoke with this researcher at the Migration Policy Institute called Jana Batalova, who's been following this for a long time. And she said that the, the way things go is that once immigrants come to the country, it's kind of just you have to figure it out on, on your own. So the United States has a fairly laissez-faire approach to recognition of credentials and helping immigrants to integrate in the labor market. And the approach is uh, sink or swim. But other countries like Australia and Canada, whose immigration systems are, you know, geared um, towards professional immigrants in in a big way, uh, they've put more resources and strategic thought on to how to help people who are coming to this country, to their countries, um, integrate into the workforce. In Canada, there's this really easy tool online where you can just put what career or profession you have, what province you're going to be in, in in Canada or you're living in, and it gives you all the steps you need to recertify in the country with links to organizations or institutes, you know, resources to help you do that. Batalova said that there just there needs to be a bigger discussion in the US at the nationwide level about how to be able to bridge this, you know, gap. Very little thinking is done in terms of people with skills are coming, are they doing well? What can we do to help them to do better? I want to come back to Dr. Wilmer Garcia Ricardo because he applied to 166 residency programs. I know he spent thousands of dollars to get into these programs, and he basically got no results. Many immigrant doctors in his situation never even get recertified, and this is happening as California needs about 4,100 primary care clinicians over the next decade. But that's not the end of his story, right? He'd heard about this program at UCLA, So it's called International Medical Graduate Program at UCLA. And it was started by these two doctors who knew about the dearth of Spanish-speaking physicians, especially in the state. You know, California still has a really big population of mainly Spanish speakers, but there aren't as many, um, you know, doctors who can speak the language and understand people culturally. 
so so it is a very competitive program. Um, I heard that, you know, the doctors who found that it told me that there's hundreds of people that um, ask about it, that apply for it, but only about 15 people can get in. And that's a limitation because of the funds they have. They're funded by, you know, foundations and um, they just, that's the money they have, you know, to help about 15 people. 15 people here. Uh-huh. When you think about Wilmer's kind of journey from Florida, Kentucky, to Southern California, now to the Central Valley, what has it meant to him to have gone on this journey and where he's at now? Yeah, so he just started his medical residency at the San Joaquin General Hospital uh, last year in 2019. And He said that for him to be able to put his lab coat back on and be able to consult with patients and work as a doctor has been everything. It's hard to describe. I also get emotional just thinking the first time that I wear a white coat. I explain to everyone who asks me this question that it's like a fish. You know, when you go fishing, you take the fish out and the fish start like wumbling around and then you put the fish back in the water. That's the same feeling I had when I had a white coat back and I wore scrubs and I went to the ER or the urgent care or I went back to an examination. Like he is so happy <laughs> to have been, you know, yeah. actually given the opportunity to work as a doctor. Dr. Garcia Ricardo says everything he's been through, including working as a patient care aide, has humbled him. He's now seen the healthcare system from a number of perspectives, and he wants to make sure that the patients he sees now, especially immigrants working low-income jobs, that they get the help they need when they come into his office. Farida Javala Romero is an immigration reporter for KQED. You can find her reporting at kqed.org. You can also follow her on Twitter. She's at Farida Javala. That's J-H-A-B-V-A-L-A. And before I let you go, I want to ask for your help. For decades, California was one of the least transparent states for police departments in the entire country. We were one of only three states that kept internal investigation records sealed. That all changed last year with this new state law, and now we have access to all these internal police records. And that includes reviews of police use of force. Our reporters have been going through a lot of these records. And now we want to know what you want to know about policing. You can go to the link on our episode notes or head to kqed.org slash police survey and let us know. This episode of The Bay was produced by Marisol Medina Cadena and editor Alan Montesilio. KQED's leadership team includes Julie Kane, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for The Bay. Talk to you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetta from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.